Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey there, Tech Stuff listeners. This is Jonathan Strickland, and I've got a request for all of you. Now, Chris and I have decided that we're going to try an experiment. We're doing our first crowdsourced episode of Tech Stuff, and we want to know what your pick is for the worst video game of all time. Now, nominations, you can you can make one nomination. You nominate one game, and you need to tell us the name of the game and the platform it was on. And it can be any platform. It can be an arcade game. It can be a PC, Mac, uh, Xbox, PS3, Nintendo, handheld console. It can be web-based, if you like. But just you let us know what the platform is so we can make sure we count that as the votes. So you can nominate your game either through email, which is techstuff at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can nominate through Twitter or Facebook. And we're going to put a uh, cutoff date on this. I, I want to have the episode go up by the end of September of 2011. So let's say you need to get your nominations in by September 8th, 2011. So if you get those nominations into us, we will make sure we include those in the process and we will have an episode where we give you the worst video games of all time based upon the votes of our listeners. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to hear from you. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. How about the power to kill a yak from 200 yards away with mind bullets? That's telekinesis, Kyle. <laughs> that is a first. We have never quoted them before right? And on this show. I probably shouldn't have just then, but, <laughs> I but I don't, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, and, uh, and there's a reason why I quoted that, but we'll get into that. First, let's get into uh, why we're going to do this episode. This comes to us courtesy of a Google Plus suggestion. This suggestion comes to us from Mary, who, and I'm going to truncate her message a bit because she actually had quite a long one with lots of different suggestions. Uh, but it starts off with, you may be interested to know, I for one am not tech savvy, at least compared to the crowd of early adopter types here on Google+. I'm a rhetoric major, should have graduated when I was 20, but I'm one class short of my BA for financial slash academic red tape reasons with minors in French and German. Guten Tag, Mary. Aside from being a pro-vocalist, my real job is teaching English to disadvantaged and academically struggling eighth graders, which is amazing. I also TA'd college-level Ret Comp 2 and have private students, tutoring clients, mostly college students, some high school, a few middle school, primarily seeing me for writing instruction or literary interpretation analysis and historical analysis with emphasis on reading comprehension. Apparently, I need to take that. <laughs> At any rate, Mary then goes on to give several suggestions, the last of which is, finally, more music stuff for those of us who miss the B-side, RIP. Programs like uh, Ableton, Pro Tools, HD, uh, electronics like D-Beam, Theremin, and the very awesome React table you can see on YouTube, worthy of its own podcast. Well, all of that is true. We are going to do a Theremin podcast, and I know that Stuff in the B-Side did one as well, but we're really going to dive down and talk about the Theremin, its history, how it works, 
Uh, and, you know, the, the, what's the basis behind it? It's pretty interesting stuff. And as I said, the song I quoted at the beginning actually does feature a theremin. Ooh. So, and, and, uh, just to help people who want to learn more about some of the stuff we're talking about today, uh, on how stuff works, we don't have how theremins work yet, although I do believe it's actually gone out as an assignment. We do have how amplifiers work, and that's going to be a very important part of our conversation at some point. We do have an article on the theremin, however. Yes, we do have articles on the theremin, just not one that specifically breaks down how it works yet. Right. Like I said, I think by the time this podcast goes live, we may, that may have changed. But uh, I know that uh, there is an assignment out there somewhere floating out in the ether. It's not me. I'm not the one writing it. So, or at least it hasn't been assigned to me. So let's uh, let's start talking about the uh, history here. You wanted to uh, talk about our buddy Leo. Yeah, Leon Theremin, actually uh, Lev Sergeyevich Terman, who was a, uh, a scientist and inventor. Um, I got a little information f- about uh, Mr. Theremin. From Britannica, always a good source for the uh, biographical on these inventors. Mm-hmm. Um, he lived in uh, in Saint Petersburg, in uh, Florida. No, Russia. Oh, oh okay. Uh, he was bo- well. He was born there in 1896 and died in in Moscow. Florida? In, uh, no. Okay. <laughs> North Dakota. <laughs> uh, 1993. <laughs> I wonder if there is a Moscow, North Dakota. Anyway, um, so yeah, it's funny that you would say out of the ether because uh, the original name for this device was the etherophone. Huh. But it was later renamed to be the theremin. And uh, basically, it's it's known for uh, the way you play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike pretty much every other kind of instrument I can think of where you actually need to touch it to do this, the theremin you specifically do not touch. Um, I knew a lot of people who have that same policy. <laughs> but yes, no, you're, you're, that is absolutely uh, correct. Theremin is played without touching it. Yep, and he actually played it for uh, for Lennon. In 1922, and and for Albert Einstein in 1927, um, patented the instrument in in New York in mm-hmm. 1928, mm-hmm. Um, and then he went into a lot of other stuff. He uh, tried to work on other musical instruments and uh, worked on an electronic security system for prisons. Um, ended up in a Siberian labor camp in the Soviet Union. Certainly not Jeez. a laughing matter. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. Uh, he was, he did work, did some work for a, uh, in a military lab during World War II, uh, where he was working on, um, uh, naval, uh, tracking systems yes. and remote controls. Mm-hmm. Um, and even on, uh, spy technology, an eavesdropping device for the KGB. Uh, he, he got the, uh, Stalin prize for that. Wow. Um, a smart guy is what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he became a, a professor of acoustics at the Moscow Conservatory. Um, and, uh, you know, had done a lot of uh, a lot of different kinds of electronics work, mm-hmm. so certainly uh, a very interesting person. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think he's probably best known. I, I don't think anyone would argue that he's best known for the etherophone. I mean, the theremin. Yeah, since it does since it does actually bear his name, yes. uh, or at least the Western version of his name. And before we go any further, <laughs> I think it might might behoove us to uh, to have behoove. a little a little listen. Okay. To uh, to what a theremin sounds like. So this is the sound of the theremin. Now, listeners may have recognized that from various songs, and really, I, I think I think what that always 
reminds me of is all, all those like 1950s science fiction films and TV series that either used a theremin or used some sort of other effect to create a theremin-like sound yes. as part of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Because not everything that, that sounds like a theremin is in fact a theremin. Right, right. In fact, one of the most famous uh, songs that people tend to say had a theremin in it did not. Yes. Which is a uh, good, good vibrations. Yeah. By yep. the by the, uh, the the Beach Boys. Yes. I almost said Beastie Boys. This is that's wow. I it's early had, for you yet. I huh? haven't had enough coffee. Yeah. This is <laughs> good vibrations by the Beastie Boys, and that would have been hilarious and wrong. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's uh, not they, a that's not a, a theremin used in that song. It's a, it's a totally different instrument. Actually, it's called a tannerin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although, I mean, it, it does it does have a similar sound to it. Mm-hmm. But you actually do play that by touching. Yes. You slide your finger on it, and it, uh, right. depending on where you're touching it, it you know produces a, a different sound. And if you were to look at a theremin, you would immediately see that uh, the I guess the most notable feature is that it's you know. Depending upon the design of it, it's going to look like some sort of a box. But from that box, you're going to see a pair of antenna. Mm-hmm. And one, traditionally, one antenna is vertical, aligned to the box, so it's it's up and down. And then a, a second antenna seems tends to come out the side of the box, so it's horizontal, and it's in a loop. And using your hands, moving them close to and further away those antenna, that's what controls the sound that comes out of the theremin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you... Uh you know, it's always good to adjust it a little bit to the left. You know, get the uh, get the picture just right. Right. Oh wait, I'm sorry. I was thinking of a different kind of antenna. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's not a rabbit ears. Um, yeah, and in fact, that's a good point. We should mention that this is these antenna are not designed to pick up any sort of radio frequency. That's Mm-mm. not the purpose nope. of the antenna. We'll get into that when we start getting into the actual uh, ways that the the theremin works. So, do, you said you wanted to talk a little bit at one point about uh, songs that you may have heard, or perhaps even other ways that you may have heard a, a theremin. Well, yeah, I mean. Um I was an early subscriber to uh, XM Radio, uh-huh. you know, the satellite radio service uh, here in the United States. And um, they used to have a channel called Special X where they would play all kinds of strange and unusual things. And they actually had, believe it or not, a whole show devoted to music from the theremin. Wow. And so there were all these – and again, you're right, a, a period records from like the 50s and stuff where there were, uh, you know – theremin songs then they were playing entire pieces on the theremin and actually uh you could find a lot of this stuff on on youtube i've seen people uh i've seen uh theremin orchestras wow where there are different people playing songs and they have different parts so everybody's got a different purpose of doing it and it's it, it sounds kind of random when you just hear those uh, sections and segments and, and other songs and pop songs and things like that. But you you know, people, you can actually play this as a musical instrument. Yeah. And so I've, I've heard a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of something specific. Do you have a, a favorite theremin song other than the one that you quoted before? Other than the one I quoted before? Not really. Um, but there, there are other songs that have used it. They're actually, uh, like I said, it's for me the the thing that I think about are all those those like the day the Earth stood still. Right. That would mm-hmm. be a famous film that used a theremin as a sound effect. Uh, there there was a theremin used at least in some versions of the theme to Star Trek, although most of the time that was actually a vocalist who yeah. did that effect. Mm-hmm. But I believe in in one or two versions of that you can hear a, a theremin being used. Um, so I mean. Th- 
there are bands that experiment and they'll throw that in the mix, and it may even be that it's it's a minor part of the song where you know it's not meant to take the forefront of the melody or anything like that. It's just another another layer of complexity within a song itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess we can now talk about what a theremin does. Like, how does it make that sound? Like, why is it that when you put your hand Closer to or further away from one antenna, it changes the pitch, and the other one uh, controls the volume. That's, by the way, the the vertical one is the pitch antenna, and the horizontal one is the volume antenna. Awesome. Actually, it's a uh, it's funny because uh, typically you think of making music with an instrument as you want it to sound as clear as possible, um, but in the opp- opportunity to play a theremin, you'll realize that. Uh, uh, it's actually all about creating interference. Yeah. Because these, uh, these antennae, um, actually have a, uh, uh, an electromagnetic field. Right. That, and you're interfering with that by coming closer and moving farther away to different degrees. Right. So really what's, what you're hearing is the sound of the interference with the machine. Yeah. It's actually to, to dive down into this, the way this works is that you've got, uh, Coils of wire inside the theremin that are generating electromagnetic field, mm-hmm. and that is uh, propagated along the antenna. And so, with the case of the pitch antenna, you have two different, um, uh, uh, like two different oscillators creating this electromagnetic field. Mm-hmm. One of them is a steady frequency; the other one's variable frequency. And the variable frequency all depends upon your hand coming into contact with, or not contact, but coming closer or, or moving further away from the pitch antenna. Uh, what will happen then is that the frequencies from these two different uh, um, oscillators will mix. And uh, this is a process that we call heterodyning. Mm-hmm. And heterodyning is uh, you, you, you process these, these signals and you take, uh, typically you can get lots of different uh, uh Results from combining signals, but typically you look at the sum and the difference, and uh, you choose, you filter one out and you focus on the other. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we we're talking about the difference because the the frequencies that are generated by these oscillators are too high for human hearing. Right. But the difference is not. Um, so if you are creating a variation in one frequency and the other frequency is remaining constant. Uh, when you take the difference of that and you take that signal, that signal is then within the range of human hearing. And because you've got that one variable frequency, you can change the pitch. Mm-hmm. So, and it all has to do with, of course, the, the capacitance that we have. You know, human beings, we have a, a, a capacitance. Yes. And, uh, it's really most, mostly based on body mass. So, um, there's another interesting point is that if you have two different people playing the same theremin, they're going to quickly find out, like two, Let's say you take one tiny little person and one huge person. So you got ham hands and you got little dainty fingers. Little dainty fingers comes up there and starts playing the theremin and realizes that when they, when their dainty fingers get within a certain distance of the antenna, a, a particular pitch is played. Then ham hands comes up and starts to play and then realizes very quickly that it's a different distance for ham hands to get to that antenna to, to make that same pitch. And it has to do with the mass of the, of, of ham hands. So, uh, you know, it's two people playing the same theremin are going to find out that they can't mimic one another's motions and get the exact same sound. It's going to be different, uh, 
based upon the actual size of the musician. Mm-hmm. And it all, ha- like I said, that all has to do with the capacitance that we as humans actually have ourselves. So we interfere with that electromagnetic field. The frequencies combine in the heterodyning uh, uh, process, as I as I mentioned. We filter out the sum. We take the difference of those two frequencies, uh, and that signal is what creates the pitch. Now, even though it's within the range of human hearing. Uh, you can't really hear it very well unless you put it through an amplification process, which we'll have to talk about in a second. And uh, the second antenna, the volume antenna, really just has the one oscillator, and then there's a, a steady uh, uh, voltage being applied further in. And what happens is when you move your hand closer to that antenna, you are interrupting the first the signal from the first oscillator, that electromagnetic field. And as you interrupt that electromagnetic magnetic field, the signal becomes weaker, which ends up being a, a, a control on the volume. So in mm-hmm. other words, the closer your hand gets to that uh, second antenna, the quieter the sound will be. You might think that you know you would want to get your hand closer to make the sound go up, but it's exactly the opposite. So if you put your hand close to the antenna, the sound's going to be very low. Mm-hmm. And as you take your hand away from that antenna, the horizontal antenna, the volume increases. So um, the pitch will remain the same, assuming that your other hand is is steady. And and also I should mention when you watch people play the theremin, especially people who have just started to play, you might notice them moving their hands up and down the the uh, length of the vertical antenna, that really doesn't have much of an effect. It, it can change the pitch a little bit, but the mm-hmm. real change in pitch has to do with the distance from the antenna. So you could keep your hand steady at the same level uh, uh, respective to the uh, vertical antenna and just change the the distance your hand is from that antenna, and that would change the pitch. You don't have to move your hand up and down the length of the antenna in order to change it. Mm-hmm. But you really need both hands to operate the the theremin. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, because you have to, I mean. Because otherwise you would just have a steady volume all right, the time. Right. So you need, you need to be able to, uh, you know, have both hands free to operate the theremins, you know, both the, the pitch and the volume. Um, and, you know, I, I think it, it can also depend not only on the person, but on the instrument itself. Oh, sure. Yeah. You, you can, know. you can actually tune a theremin as well. And that, that all has to do with the electronics that are inside the theremin. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh, depending upon the electronic components you've put in there and the, the frequency difference between, uh, the variable frequency and the steady frequency, uh, you, you'll have a certain octave range that that theremin is capable of playing. And, uh, and sometimes that octave range can be quite, uh, uh, large, mm-hmm. you know, a very large range, but that means that you have to have even more control when you're playing it. Uh, that, uh, that tiny changes in the distance between your hand and the antenna will result in fairly significant changes in pitch, which is why the theremin is one of those instruments that's, you know, you can step right up and start playing it, uh, and have fun making weird noises, but if you want to be able to actually play a tune with uh, with regularity, it takes a lot of practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's one of those really difficult to master pieces. And uh, I actually have a list of some of the components that are in a typical theremin, if you would like to hear. Sure. Okay, so we've got the two antenna, as I mentioned before. Uh, the the volume antenna is actually a, a loop. It looks like a, a, a semicircle that's attached to the horizontal side, one of the horizontal sides of the uh the theremin itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the re- the reason for that design is that the old theremins were all based on uh, vacuum tube technology. This was before solid state technology was was 
really a thing at all, mm-hmm. the first theremin. And so um, in order to be able to make this antenna and have it fit with the old system, you actually had to create this loop so that you had the right antenna length without it interfering with the other electronic components of the device. So uh, even though we've reached a point now where most modern theremins uh, still use vacuum tubes, at least in some capacity, and we'll talk about that a little capacity. bit. <laughs> hey, but Chris, I'm sure we'll have something to say about using vacuum tubes as opposed to solid state. Uh, being the musician, you <laughs> would you would know more about this than I do. But um, in general, it has to do with sound quality. So there are still vacuum tubes used in most modern theremins, but they also involve some solid state electronic components now, which means that you no longer would have to do that loop. Uh, to achieve the same effect, but I think a lot of a lot of theremin designers like to use it anyway, just kind of as a a throwback to the original theremin. So it's almost like it's almost like a traditional thing at this point. Yeah. Um. So inside the theremin, you're going to find typically a pair of chassis. Uh, one chassis is going to be for your electromagnetic components, and this is where this is what generates that electromagnetic field for both of the antenna. Um, you would normally find three oscillators in there. You would find two oscillators for the pitch, one oscillator for the volume. Uh, This chassis, often called an upper chassis in a lot of the theremins I've looked at, uh, has to be separated from the other chassis, which has the amplification and power uh, uh, elements to it, because otherwise Mm -hmm. the electromagnetic field would interfere with the operation of those elements. All right? Mm -hmm. So the lower chassis is where you get the power coming into the device, uh, and you have the amplification uh, oscillators. And uh, usually we use uh, triodes in that. And mm. you, you probably have heard of diodes. Diodes, of course, are those uh, electronic components that allow electrons to pass through one way but not like back. Other. Yeah, it's a one-way lane. It allows electron uh, flow in one direction only. Triodes are a little different. Triodes are, well, it's a kind of vacuum tube. And, and from a superficial level, they resemble a light bulb. Mm-hmm. And the way a triode works is that there are typically three elements within a triode, which makes sense when you hear the name. You've got the the cathode, which is the part of the triode that uh, that will shed electrons. Mm-hmm. You've got a grid of some sort that will control the flow of electrons. It it, it kind of acts as like a a gate in a way. Yeah. And then you have the anode, which is where the electrons want to get to because it has a positive charge. Now remember, electrons have a, a negative charge, so if, Negative wants to be attract is it is attracted to positive. So if right. you have a a positive element on one side, a negative element on the another side, and a gate in the middle to control the flow, and that's the basis behind um, the the triode. Now, in order to control the flow of electrons, what you have to do is you hook up that gate to a source of electricity. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, if you're generating electricity and you're you're putting a current through that gate. That means you're putting negative electrons through the gate. Now, that's going to repel the electrons coming out of the cathode. Mm-hmm. All right. So you've got the cathode. Let's imagine that the cathode's on the left-hand side. And in the middle is this gate that has electrons running through it. And on the right, you have the anode. Now, the the current that you're putting through that gate is going to vary because that's your input. That's that's the signal that's going into – like when you're making a sound electronically, like speaking into a microphone or playing a music instrument that's plugged into this amplifier. Right. So it's a variable frequency again, a variable current. And uh and so sometimes the current's going to be a, is going to allow a certain number of electrons through because there's, you know, you, as you build up 
the uh, the charge on the cathode side, some electrons are going to pass through that gate. It's going to be strong enough energy for it to go through the gate. Other times, the, the signal is going to be lower. It's going to allow more electrons through. That's the whole basis of the amplifier. Right. So the cathode looks like a filament. You have to, in order to make electrons shed, you have to add energy into the system. Mm-hmm. So, and this is a, 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 rather than the variable source, which is what we see in the gate, this is a, um, a, a steady power source that's going into the cathode. Okay. So it, it heats up this filament, which gives off light, depending upon what kind of um, vacuum tube it is, it may be a different color. Like a lot of them are kind of an orangish color. If you're talking about a, a vacuum tube for like a big power system, it tends to burn white hot. Mm-hmm. But that's when it starts to shed thousands and thousands of electrons. The, the energy from the electricity is, is enough to break the electrons free from their shells, and then they will go toward the positively charged uh, anode. So that is the basis of – you just got a, a – it was like a podcast within a podcast. That was a basic <laughs> electronics of what a triode is and what it does mm-hmm. or really vacuum tubes in general, although there are other kinds of vacuum tubes besides triodes. They're not – it's not a one-to-one. Right. You know, A triode is just one type of vacuum tube. All right. So you've got several of those in there acting as amplifiers. Um, and then you've also got your, your power source. You've got your uh, – uh, uh, capacitors, you've got resistors, um, and then you've got the uh, antenna. Oh, I've already s- spoken about those as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the copper coils, which generate the electromagnetic field. Mm-hmm. Those are your basic components that all together make up the guts of a theremin. And there are actually, I've seen videos online that kind of give an overall view of how to build a theremin. Mm-hmm. And there are also theremin kits out there if you want to try and make your own. Um, it's an interesting project. I understand, like even the guy who was, I was watching these videos, the guy who builds the theremin actually said, um, I can build them, but I can't play them. <laughs> so he said he loves, he enjoys building them. He tends to build them for other people, like like bands and stuff that are interested in using the theremin. Well, um Anyone interested in, in playing the theremin should check out uh, an article that Jane McGrath wrote for the website called How to Play a Theremin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she actually quoted some of the people who are well-known uh, thereminists, thereminists, theremin players. Um, Thereminators. Yeah. They come from the future. Oh, that's terrible. Sarah Connor. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> uh, Lydia Kavina is one. Uh, she uh, actually studied under Leon Theremin um, and basically had suggested that uh, it's good to keep your feet about a foot apart, uh, 0.3 meters. Um, but it, it really depends on the theremin and, uh, you know, and how far you want to stand away from it. And of course, as you mentioned, the, uh, the capacitance of the person playing it. Um, but generally, uh, depending on the number of octaves available, um, in that theremin, I mean, the, the range of the theremin, uh, you might have to stand farther away if it has a greater range, mm-hmm. um, according to, uh, uh, Ms. Kavina. Um, also, uh, apparently you can actually tune the device yourself by, uh, putting your right hand at your shoulder, or I guess your left hand, depending on how you're playing it. So you start with your hand at your shoulder, regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, uh, she said the idea is you need to play the song uh, slowly when you're getting started because um, it takes a while to get used to uh, controlling the pitch 
that you're trying to to make if you're actually trying to play a song a, right, a melody right. with it um and uh Clara Rockmore another person that uh um Jane quoted in her article and basically said that uh you have to be very conscious of what you're doing with your body um mm-hmm. you know as a percussionist I tend to uh groove a little bit you know start getting into it and sure. bobbing and getting into the motion uh that can affect the way you're playing because the theremin is uh going by your body movement and how close you are to it. So anything, any other stray movement is going to affect the sound coming out of the theremin. So you have to be very careful um, and you have to be very conscious of what you're doing when you're, when you're trying to play that. So, you know, posture and, and uh, stray movements can affect it. It's a lot different from say a guitar where you have a string that assuming it's properly tuned uh, when you play that string, while pressing down at a certain fret, it's always going to produce the same note. Yeah. Right? Uh, there's, there's no variation there. Uh, but with a theremin, it's all about the distance between you and the antenna and, uh, and, and not, and, and again, your, your body mass. So while two different people can pick up the same guitar and play the same series of notes just following the same frets, that wouldn't necessarily be the same uh, story if they were trying to play a theremin and, and st- standing at the same distance from the device, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting to me. Um, you know, I had mentioned also about the amplifiers using vacuum tubes and that that tends to be a preference. Mm-hmm. Would you like to, to weigh in a little bit as a musician about that? Well, you know, it it, it kind of depends on the sound you're getting. Mm-hmm. I, you know, um, most of the musicians, I mean, I rarely talk to people about using a theremin in a band. Right. Um, but I mean, vacuum tubes and amplifiers in general. Uh, vacuum tubes, uh, most of what I've heard people say is that they feel that vacuum tubes produce a warmer sound. Yeah, which is difficult to quantify. Sound. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, it's, it's really in the ear of the listener, to yeah, be you, honest you with you. You might say that solid state produces a flatter sound. And I mean, these are all terms that don't really have a way of, uh, it's hard to it's hard to put it in a measurable sense, but it is. It is it one is. of those things that when you start listening to it, you say, "You know what? That does. It just sounds better." Yeah. You know, and uh, and even today, a lot of amps out there for various musical instruments, uh, sure. not just the one, not just the amplifiers that you'll find in a theremin, uh, still use vacuum tubes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even though the the technology otherwise has almost disappeared. Well, solid state era. Yeah. Well, solid state too. I mean, you turn on a solid state device, mm-hmm. amplifier, whatever. Um, it's going to be on a lot quicker. Yeah. It doesn't um, have to warm up. Yeah. And a vacuum tube device will. Um, yeah. and you can, and you could see it too. If you have a, if you can see through, like I have, for example, I have a uh, vacuum tube amplifier and a solid state amplifier. Um, you turn it on and at first the, the vacuum tubes are, you know, look as though they are, you know, you, they would when the device is off, and then they start to glow, and you could see that things are coming on. And uh, you could turn on a source of sound, say a you know a, a, a turntable or a tuner, radio tuner, and at first you won't hear anything, and as the vacuum tubes warm up, you know the amplifier will begin to play the music because right. they're actually coming online. But it takes them a while. Yeah, um, makes me think of the the beginning of that documentary, Back to the Future. Yeah, where he's turning on all the uh, amps. Right. Yeah. Documentary. It's a good one. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny though, because, um, it's sort of like vinyl for a lot of musicians yeah. too, because for, you know, the, the, uh, vacuum tube manufacturers almost became extinct 
And as time has worn on and people have said, you know what, I really like the way that that works. I like the sound that I get from vacuum tube amps or, you know, I have this mm-hmm. other thing that uses vacuum tubes and I really like it. I actually have a uh, Hammond organ that uses um, vacuum tubes, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, without some manufacturer, you know, so these things have uh, have stayed in production even though solid state for a while, it looked like it was going to, you know, knock it out. But yeah, and just like a just like an incandescent light bulb, mm-hmm. vacuum tubes will eventually burn out. Yes, they will. It uh, I mean, it's it's not going to be super fast or anything, but that's why it's important that <laughs> these industries still exist because otherwise we would have a finite number that, and once we got to the end of it, that would be it. Yeah. So I guess we we should be thankful for uh, devices like the theremin and, and guitar uh, amplifiers for keeping a a what what otherwise people might say an obsolete technology uh, alive and kicking. Yep. Anyway, that that pretty much wraps up this discussion on the theremin and what it is and how it does what it does. If you guys are interested in more, there are tons of videos online. We also have that article that Chris was mentioning about uh, how to play a theremin in, in at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, guys, if you have any suggestions, you can let us know on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW. Or you can email us. That address is TechStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you